Well, as they're heading out, just want to say good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is always fun to be able to worship together and to learn together. And uh, um, I am just every week so thankful for it's inappropriate, Gabriel. Your parents are sitting right there. You, you know, yeah. um, every week I have to remind myself, my mom might listen to this, so I have to be saved myself. So, uh, but no, I'm just so thankful for, for this team. And, and not only that God gave us music because it expresses our hearts, it captures our emotions, our desires, our, our fears, our everything. Um, and then it also lets us to kind of hear from, from God what his heart is. Um, so music, people who can play music really, really, really well, that's kind of nice. Um, and then also, especially people that can do that with the right heart. And I know all these people, and they're just incredible. And I, I've shared this before. I went through several, actually quite a few years where I had a really hard time worshiping. I'll be honest, I was kind of burned, and I was seeing what was happening in the industry and all the performance that it was. And it was more about mastering the craft of the performance than it was actually worshiping our creator. And I am just so thankful. Now, I'm that kind of a heart comes from the trenches. It comes from a lot of wounds. It comes from a lot of learning experiences, to put it nicely. Um, but I am very, very thankful that God has has brought us, you know, these these leaders through those experiences, um, just in a in a loving way. And just I cannot say thank you enough. It's so good to to worship together. So, well, hey, this morning um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue our series of dear church, looking at the seven churches in the in the book of Revelation. Um, this might come to a surprise to you, um, but my mom was and still is a really really good cook. I, I know you look at this and you think, surely he was an emaciated child, right? Like he didn't get enough nutrients and and stuff like that. My mom is just an amazing cook. Like I'd have friends from high school that would always come over and what did mama Q cook, you know, and then my friends from college, you know, would come over, you know, I lived three hours away and they wanted to come up just to have my mom cook for them. Right. And that was her love language. One time we actually had, when I was playing uh, basketball in college, I was in college in Kansas. I lived, grew up in Nebraska and we were going to a Thanksgiving tournament in South Dakota. Well, every year my Thanksgiving meal would be a turkey sandwich at Subway. It's you're supposed to go, Oh, there you go, because I couldn't eat at home a turkey from my mom, who's a really good cook. So what did my mom do the year that we actually had a, a Thanksgiving tournament in South Dakota? We'll just bring the charter bus into our quarter mile long driveway on the country and circle around in our yard and we'll just feed the whole team. And my mom literally by herself made an entire Thanksgiving meal, turkey, mashed potatoes, corn, gravy, you know, everything like that for our entire team. And, and it was, it was incredible. We were sticking everybody throughout our whole house and it was crazy, but there was one meal that my mom was awful at. I pray she's not going to watch this this morning. Listen, because, but because I couldn't stand eating her steak. Yeah, no, it gets worse. Um, because the steak that we would get came from a neighbor and this is premium grade A Nebraska corn-fed beef. I mean, the stuff that you pay hundreds of dollars to get ice shipped from you from Nebraska, we had it just next door, right? And we would go to the Henderson meat processors and we would get a whole cow. And they it all started with how it was cut because 
I didn't know growing up that steaks were supposed to be thick because then they're juicy. My mom would have them cut to slightly thicker than beef jerky. And that's a little prelude right there, right? That's foreshadowing of where the story's going. And so they would cut it super thin. And then on top of that, because we had a whole cow, my, my mom had this gigantic sarcophagus deep freezer in our garage uh, that we had like, it was packed full of hundreds of pounds of, of beef, right? And so what happened though, is that even though we had five ravenous kids in our family, it still took us a while to eat a whole cow. And so by the time you would be getting to some of that stuff, it was thin. And so it was freezer burned. Well, freezer burned meat, it just isn't going to be, you know, uh, uh, re reanimated, right? Like it's just, it's toast. Then on top of that, we did not own a grill. My dad doesn't cook. He never has, probably never will. I think they have a grill now that's been used whenever like one of the brothers that I come over, but they don't, they, they never have a grill growing up. We had an electric range in the kitchen. And so my mom would take these freezer burned little, little paper thin steak patties, and she would slap them on there for about 20 minutes each side. Oof. And then we'd have these parch, these char pucks on our, on our, on our dish. Right. And so what I would do is immediately, as soon as it would be onto my plate, I would grab the Heinz 57 and I would just like shake it out, shake it out, get the next bottle, shake it out, shake it out. Maybe throw some, some, uh, some, uh, uh, whatever other kind of stuff on there. And, and I would pray that my dad's prayer would go extra long so that it had a little bit of a chance to soak up some moisture to, to kind of become a little bit more palatable, right? And, and can you imagine the, the childhood that I had that I literally said these words, steak again? Like if, you're, if you are conflicted right now, that is my childhood, right? This is terrible. Yeah, it, it was tasteless, dried out jerky, right? Well, now that I have you sufficiently confused and worked up and just like, what's so bothersome about this, right? Something that was meant to be delicious and perfectly good to eat was ruined because it wasn't handled correctly. Something that was perfect and amazing was corrupted and became something that was yucky. Mom, everything else was incredible, okay? Um, so that's where we're going this morning in with the next church of Revelation. Uh, it's the church called Pergamum. And the word Pergamum means compromised or compromising church. If you haven't been uh, part of the series yet, I encourage you to go online and kind of listen because it kind of, we start with an introduction and kind of work our way through. And it's, it's been really, really relevant, I think, for us today, just as much as it was 2000 years ago. So I have some pictures up here to kind of give us an idea of what Pergamum was. It was another one of the seven key cities of the, the Roman province of Asia. Now, again, that's modern day Turkey, right? So uh, Pergamum was a, a pretty, again, a key city. It had several things going on there. One, I know I'm going to butcher this. I should have looked up how to actually say this, but it was home to the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was actually, it was the Greek god of healing and doctors, all right? Sounds pretty cool, right? But their crest is a staff with a snake woven around it. Now, you lost me at snake, all right? Staff, cool, snake, bad, right? But that's what we have today, right? And so 
So that, that might sound okay because, oh, that's great. Doctors and healings, right? Like we have Morgan, she's going to become a doctor and I hope that she rocks it. It continues to rock in her schooling because someday she's going to take care of me when I'm old and decrepit, right? And so keep on getting your science and doctor's stuff, right? Because that's good. The problem was, is in their society, medicine was their savior. And so they resorted to all these cultic things and, and a lot of other mystical stuff instead of just the pure science. They, they basically turned medicine and science into their savior. Um, it was actually home to the second largest library in antiquity, second only to Alexandria in Egypt. It was also home to the throne of Zeus. It was a large altar on top of the, the hill that overlooked the city. Now, now uh, Pergamum is actually literally, I think it was like a thousand, about 900 uh, elevation gain 900 feet elevation gain and it's kind of on this this just hill and they built her all around it well on the top was this tent was this throne of zeus and it was this altar um this was actually really cool because it was excavated in the 1880s by some german um uh scholars and they they literally excavated it and they they took it and it's still on display in berlin in berlin today so we can actually see this right well, there was a statue of Zeus because it was the throne of Zeus. And again, snakes all around his feet. Just gross. You kind of get the picture, right? What's going on here? The thing was, though, is that they worshiped Zeus as savior. So you have medicine and science as savior. You have this Greek god as savior. And then third, they have there was home to three temples that were dedicated to emperor worship. The Roman Caesar considered himself to be God. And so if you're going to be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, if you're going to be super patriotic, you had to not only follow Caesar, you had to worship him as God. So medicine and science, this Zeus is this, this kind of this uh, cultic mytho uh, mythological figure, Zeus is savior. And now Caesar is our savior. And then last, you also had all the other traditional pagans and idols and worship practices common amongst the Roman culture and religion. And we kind of looked about at some of those um, in, uh, uh, in previous weeks. So again, the culture and the religion. So that's, that's kind of to paint a picture of Pergamum was probably by many standards, a really, really cool place. But as we're gonna see, it's also a very spiritually dangerous place. Now, again, the word Pergamum means objectionable marriage. It, it's That's where we get this compromised or compromising church because of an objectionable marriage. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, just a couple of verses. Verse 12, this is Jesus. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Wow. <laughs> like, what a great place. Welcome to Saratoga, home of Satan's throne, right? Move, we'll help you move. And, we're, you know, it's sort of like, whoa, what a, what a statement, right? Well, what does he mean? Well, there's some clues because we look at archaeologically what is, what is proven to have actually been there, right? We have four good choices. The fact that medicine and science was their savior, um, and they had pagan worship and, and all these things like that. Um, uh, that, was, that was an option. Um, the Acropolis, which was where all the, uh, the pagan worship and sacrifice with all the idols and altars and prostitutes and sacrifices, 
Again, culture and religion was, was another option to be their savior. Um, you have the throne of Zeus, where this, this Greek god was the savior. Um, but then you have the Roman imperial cult, to where basically the state, the government, was the god, the, the savior, the messiah. And, and radical devotion to the state, to the government, was considered the way to salvation. Now, I think we can take our pick from either one of those four, but I really think it's, it's kind of universal. It's all four of those, right? Anything that we bury to our faith is going into dangerous territory. Each one of these is an objectionable marriage to the gospel of Jesus. He continues in verse 13, yet you remain loyal to me. You live in this, in this city of Satan's throne, but you remain loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. There he goes again, right? Like, Jesus, calm it down a little bit, right? Um, but he just keeps on, he keeps on saying it. He goes, even though um, Antipas was, was martyred, he was killed for the faith, you've stayed faithful. Now, again, like Smyrna before, that was a persecuted church. It was, it was met with resistance. Um, they stayed somewhat faithful. They remained loyal. But verse 14, that word, but, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some of those whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed uh, Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans, um, uh, Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Okay, there's a couple things going on here. He says, a few complaints I have against you. First of all, Balaam. Who's this Balaam guy? Balaam is an Old Testament priest um, who was hired by Balak, the king of the, uh, the Moabite king, to, uh, to put a curse on the nation of Israel. Uh, this takes place in Numbers 22 through 25 in that area of the Old Testament. Literally, Balak sees the Israelites coming to take over his land, and so he has Balaam, who is kind of a big deal at the time. He was kind of this, this rogue, you know, uh, priest for hire who could curse and bless and everything like that amongst the, you know, according to the day and time of, of, of what they were, where they were at. And, and so Balak says, hey, I will hire you, and that's where you, you see Balaam's donkey, right? Balaam is on his way to go curse Israel, and his donkey is startled by an angel of the Lord. And uh, Balaam doesn't see it, and so like the, the, it basically squeezes his leg. And finally, the third time, he says, stupid donkey, <laughs> why don't you let me go? And the donkey turns around and says, well, because, you know, and, ba and Balaam has this beautiful conversation with the donkey. Okay. Nothing weird about that. Um, but it's crazy though, because literally God uses this donkey to change his heart and his mind. And so instead of following through with what he was hired to do, he actually blesses Israel and curses Balak, the king of the Moabites. Now he sounds like a hero, right? Like, wow, that's incredible. You listen to your donkey, um, and, and way to go. You changed the course of history. However, as we follow the story, we see that he was actually the anti-hero because he slowly started to use his acceptance into Israel and his fame amongst the Israelites to corrupt Israel from the inside. It's a fascinating story. 
Because this guy, so we're like, oh, this guy, he's going to curse us. No, he's actually going to bless us. He's a hero. Woo. And he now has a voice amongst the Israel's ranks. And he's corrupting them from the inside. Soon after that, Balaam actually convinced the Israelite men to go and have sexual relations with the Moabite women. Now, some of these Moabite women were actually temple prostitutes. And, hey, you're already in this far. And so then they were kind of afterwards, they're like, hey, that was fun. Let's go worship at our temple, at our, at our pagan temples. And they're kind of like, well, I guess we're, we're in this far. We might as well keep on going. It's a terrifying story. It's, it's a, such a deep story. And then the Nicolaitans. Remember, Nico means power. Laity means people. And so it means power over the people. This came from a guy who said he was a Christian, and he was actually one of the leaders of the church of Asia, Asia but he ended up, again, corrupting from the inside um, and was teaching that, well, we're covered by grace, so go and worship the idols. Eat the meat that was used to sacrifice to the idols. Go and have sexual relationships with the temple process. It's not a big deal because what you do with your body means nothing because it's your body. You can have fun, whatever makes you happy, right? God doesn't have sovereignty over our body. We just use him to get us into heaven. And so he promoted this huge disconnect between body and spirit. And it, it's so powerful because he uses this, this image of he taught them how to trip the people up. Now that word literally comes, uh, it means stumbling block. And, and there was three things that they could do. One, if they were on a narrow path, they could throw a rock into the path, right? And if you've ever been, been hiking on a narrow path and there's a root or there's a rock or a stump or anything like that, when you stub your toe, it hurts. It literally incapacitates you and you can fall over. What happens? We're susceptible to attack. Exactly right. That's the next one is there would be a trigger <laughs> and, and it would release something. Thank you for that illustration there. Because it would literally like you would hit a rope or a twig and, and it would trigger some kind of trap. Or they would just throw out an old, old stick and just trip you up. And the whole point is I'm going to be so underhanded. I'm going to throw something in your path to where you're not going to notice it. It's subtle. It's sly. It's deceptive. But it's going to trip you up and make you more susceptible to the attack. And then what would they do is they would either beat you or kill you. And then they would take your stuff. They didn't care about you. They wanted to destroy you. And so it's a great visualization of what happens in a spiritual sense. Now, Paul says in his, in his letters, he says, hey, what comes from outside your body doesn't make you clean or dirty. So if you want to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, it won't make you dirty. However, he says, don't be a stumbling block to those who come from that history. So if, you, if, if that's been your experience, be sensitive about it. Be smart about it, right? It's kind of like with alcohol. I have no problem with alcohol. I've never been drunk. I don't, I don't want to be drunk. But I want to be aware of my brothers and sisters around me who maybe they've partied really hard or they still have a temptation to where that takes them to a dark place. And so I just don't want to be a stumbling block. Like, I can go as long as I want. Like, it doesn't matter. And so for me, but I know that maybe one drink that I have might cause a brother or sister to really relapse. We were just laughing the other week about music. Like, there's certain music that for some people, it takes them to a dark place in their past. And that's where Jesus says, or, you know, Paul says, hey, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So if this doesn't matter really to you, then, then it, you know, as long as it's not immoral, it, meat is meat, right? 
it doesn't matter who it's been sacrificed to, but the thing that we need to be smart about is our brothers and sisters around us. And so uh, John here, or Jesus here, is actually you know, warning about the meat that was sacrificed to idols because we don't know how it might be a stumbling block to someone around us. Then he talks about being snared by sexual practices. Now, again, sex is an ingenious snare of how powerful that hooking can be for us, how controlling, how subtle it can be, because it gets us to cross lines that we never thought we'd cross. And then once we cross those lines, well, we're all in now, so we might as well keep on going, right? But it kind of shows us this, this method that Satan has. We never set out to say, I'm going to leave Jesus today. I'm going to turn my back on my faith today. I don't like that. Usually what happens, not all the time, but usually what happens is that our bodies will lead us astray. We start thinking about pleasure and about what we want and what I, well, it's my right. It's my body. It's my this and it's my that. And next thing you know, well, now my beliefs will follow. And so our bodies will lead where our beliefs go. When it should be the other way, our beliefs our doctrine, our theology, God's word, God's truth should determine where our bodies go. What happens is that things like sex and money and stuff and all these other things, all these different agendas that are out there, they become bigger than God. We get in deep. So all of a sudden, instead of God being in the center, he begins number two, number three, number four. And next thing you know, we just release him altogether. Now, again, I've heard people say, what's the big deal about sex? Like, what does God care about sex? Isn't that kind of weird? Well, it matters to us. We like to have our thoughts on it. We have pretty strong opinions and beliefs on it. Why wouldn't God? He created us. In fact, he gave us that as a gift. And, and just like, just like if, if we give our kid a gift that's very specific for what it's for, right? Let's say we give our kid a video game. And it's sort of like, hey, here's a video game. It's meant to have fun. You can play with your friends. We can, we can, you know, we can connect with that. And, and, you know, it's not, you're not meant to play the video game all the time, but hey, it can be a good, healthy thing, you know, in its place, right? But what happens if all of a sudden your, your kid just never gets off the video game or starts using it for other things and starts playing games that you shouldn't be playing and things like that, right? Like all of a sudden now we have an issue because what you gave as a gift, instead of building bridges and building that camaraderie and that connection now has become an isolating and alienating thing. And it's leading to deeper and deeper issues. God gave us a gift. It was meant to connect us in appropriate ways. It was meant as a bond, a one-time bond. Stick it and leave it, right? Like we are together forever. That's what God meant it. Now we're sinful, we mess it up. Right? And, and, but God can heal us. God can redeem us. Right? God can restore us. But what's the problem is that our culture says it means nothing. It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. We need to honor God with how we treat the gifts that He gives us. And, and I think because God created us and He gave that as a gift, I think we should be really sensitive to what the giver of that gift had intended for it. That's my thought. That's the way I read the Bible. I don't mean that in a weird, like mean, like judgmental, bigoted way or anything like that. But I think for me, instead of my sexuality defining who I am, my sexuality is defined by the one who gave it to me. And I think that's a very biblical way of understanding it. 
So the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans blurred the lines between truth and lies. I read in a um, commentary this week that says, compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective tools. Compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective tools. Why? Because compromise happens slowly. It's oftentimes subtle. It's hard to notice. It lowers the standards and it changes the core values, right? It causes us to accept what we once rejected and reject what we once accepted. What was unacceptable before now becomes the norm. What replaces it and even replaces what was once good with a new good. And so we, we kind of see that happening time after time in lots of different areas of our lives, right? Romans 12, 2 kind of anticipates this because it says, don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so a lot of times we find ourselves being influenced by, by the culture and, and things like that outside of things and, and our, our beliefs, our faith, our doctrine, our theology, our morality is shaped by that instead of by God's word. Now, I just want to take a pause here. <laughs> We're probably encountering what I'm saying in a lot of different ways. Like there's probably some of us that are kind of like, yes, this is truth. This is good. Keep preaching. Come on. This is go. Let's go. Let's go. Some of us might say, yeah, but you don't know my experience. You don't know how this has been taught. You don't know the hurt and the pain that what you're saying right now is bringing to me. I recognize that. And if, if that's where you're at, I just want to say, please hear everything that I'm saying, how I'm, I'm teaching God's word. Please hear it from a humble heart and, and saying, I am, this is out of love. And this is not out of any type of weird, hyper fundamental, you know, uh, bigoted, judgmental, sheltered us versus them mentality. It's not. It's meant to be a conversation that's based off of love. It comes out of love. Jesus, in his gospel, of, in uh, the gospel that John wrote, he said that he, he's praying. He says, Father, I don't want for my believers to be pulled out of the world. He literally says, I don't want my believers to be secluded out of the world. I don't want them to be isolated. I don't want them to be insulated. I don't want them to create these little echo chamber silos, you know, to where so like it's Christians versus everybody. He says, no, I want them to be in the world because they are the light. They have the light of Jesus and we need to be loving, right? The Bible says that if we, we can be as right as we want, but if we're not in the right, we're just a resanging clung, a uh, resanging, resang, sorry, <laughs> A, a noisy gong and a clashing cymbal. Sorry, my, my, my brain is mixed up right now. But you get where, where it's coming from, right? It's not this, oh, evil world, evil world. It's, oh, broken world. It's, it's, a, it's a trajectory towards, not away. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave everything. Love isn't loving those that love you. Love is loving those that hate you. It's going in, but we got to be honest and say, when we are in the world and not of it, it's really easy to soon become of it. Yes. If we're not careful to look at what we're marrying ourselves to and we're allowing to be married to our faith, we can go down some pretty dangerous paths. Jesus 
was accused of being a drunk, a glutton. Why? Because he hung out with drunks and gluttons and prostitutes and, and, and traitors and sick people, outcasts. Those were his friends. That's who he hung out with. But he watched out instead of being influenced by them, he was influencing them. And they were, they loved to have him. That is our blueprint. That is our model to say, how do we follow in the footsteps of Jesus to where a broken, sinful, hurting world wants the presence of Jesus through us in their midst? That's kind of one of our things we don't talk about a lot, but is, are we being invited into our community, into the darkest recesses of our community because of the light of Jesus? Okay, verse 16. He says, repent of your sin. Remember that word repent literally means to turn, to change not only our mind, but our actual direction. It's not just a, a, a mental uh, theological ascent. It's literally changing our mind and our direction. He says, repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That should be a little bit jarring, right? He started off with this in, in verse 12, but then we also look back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, to where he says the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 says the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the, two, than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Anybody ever had surgery before? Probably most of us, right? You know, they're probably not just like, hey, you know, I think this will do. Let's let's see if this works, right? Like this will this is pretty sharp. I wouldn't want to run my finger on it. But at the same time, Morgan, please don't use that to cut open into my heart someday, right? We want those instruments to slice to the very core of who we are. That's what we want. And so the word of God is sharper than anything. It can sever every single thing in our body to get to the core, to see where the real issue is at. Why? To destroy us? No, to bring healing, to bring forgiveness, to bring restoration, to bring love. We, we have to recognize that God's word is true. It's trustworthy. It's authoritative. We need to trust it enough to guide our lives more than anything else out there. Now, what's interesting, because of Pergamum's extreme devotion to Caesar, um, they were actually entrusted with the ability to carry out capital punishment without permission of the Roman emperor. Okay, that's kind of a big deal, because it's kind of trusting the native folk to, to, to carry out their own kind of like justice out there, right? It's sort of like, we know you won't do anything to hurt Caesar, so you go ahead and just take care of business. Well, capital punish punishment is, Right. And so what did they have as a symbol of that prized authority? A sword. So they have the symbol of the sword to say, we are so righteous in our devotion to Caesar that we can carry out justice our own way. And what does Jesus say? Ah, it's the two-edged sword of my mouth that really matters. We need to lean into the sovereignty of God. No government, no world authority, no culture, no, no, you know, influencer or anything should have more power in our lives than Jesus and his word. And then it ends with the promise in verse 17. 
Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who's victorious, I will give them some of the manna that has, that has been hidden away in heaven. Now notice, to the first church, he promises the tree of life. Last week, he promises the crown of life. And now to this church, he promises the bread of life. The tree of life, the crown of life, and now the bread of life. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now, what's interesting is that these stones were, they had multiple uses, but two of the major ones were, were really interesting in ancient time. One, it was given as a pronouncement of exoneration of guilt. And so if you got a white stone, it meant you were free. All your sins were gone. All of the condemnation, all of the judgment, like, like, hey, you got a white stone. I'm free. I have no more, sin has no more control over me. Satan has no more control of me. I belong to Jesus. And then the second one is really interesting. It was meant as a ticket for admission. And so that's what's interesting is because it, it has a name on it, but it's not just your name, it's a new name. Now, a couple things there. You're admitted. If you are with Jesus, you have your ticket to heaven, right? To go old school, right? Ticket to, to heavenly, heaven bound train. I got my ticket, right? Like, there we go. But literally he says, I'll give that. And on it is your new name. Now, what happens is in this culture, you would get new names for different things. It was a sign of new rank, new position, new authority, new sense of belonging, like if, if uh, uh, someone would buy someone out of slavery, they would give them a new name. That's your old name. That's your slave name. But this is your new free name. In Jesus, we receive a new identity, a new position, a new rank. Nothing is more powerful than that. So Jesus wants the believers in Pergamum that if they stay true and they're cautious about what they allow to be married to the faith, if they are, if they are kind of stay faithful in that, they'll receive new and eternal life. So Jesus commends them for not giving into the persecution, but he warns them about giving into the compromise. Just like their name means Pergamum, objectionable marriage, he doesn't want anything to be objectionably married to his gospel. He doesn't want something that's pure and good to be mishandled like my mom's steak and turned into something that's yucky, right? We, we want to be thankful of the gift that we have. We don't want to marry any kind of idolatry, immorality, and appropriate power, any of those things to our faith in Jesus. We should be more dedicated to the gospel of the manger, the cross, and the empty tomb than anything we see out in the world, right? Yeah, we have, we have things like culture and politics and sexuality and finances and entertainment and all these causes and movements and stuff like that. And some can be good and some can be very dangerous, but when we allow those to be attached to the gospel, it becomes very dangerous. This is a very, very simple saying. <laughs> it's maybe a little bit oversimplistic, but I think it's a good reminder that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's just like the old brownie trick that I pulled a couple weeks ago, right? Ah, this is a great brownie, but as soon as you think, well, some of Doc, Roscoe's, you know, doo-doo might be in there, it's nothing. 
right? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So close out with a couple things that we can do to bridge the gap between belief and action, knowing and doing. Number one, recognize the external influences that might be wanting to marry itself to our faith in Jesus. What are the external influences that we've allowed to fill our ears, our, our minds, our eyes, our hearts, our time, and what influences are those things having? Number two, recognize the internal influences, the internal things that have been marrying themselves and altering our faith in Jesus, right? What echo chambers do we need to challenge? What thought patterns? What, what voices in our head? What desires? What, what kind of things have we allowed to become louder than the spirit of God in our minds, in our hearts? And then last, use the sharp two-edged sword. <laughs> it's, our only, it's our only chance. If we try to grit through our years on this world out of our own strength, our own resourcefulness, our own will, our own grit and determination, it won't work. We're going to be dry. We're going to be dead. We're going to be bitter. We're going to be angry. We're going to be judgmental. We're going to be just toxic. But if we allow God to fill our minds, our hearts, everything that we are with his word, God is love. God is, God is not accepting in the, in the worldly cliche, but he, he accepts us. He doesn't say, okay, if you can do this, 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 then you can get through the door. He says, come through me. I am the gate. That's it. Just come to me, surrender your life to me, and then you have eternal life. People can say that that's really unloving and unaccepting and things like that, but it's the most accepting thing I know. It literally is surrender our lives to him, he is the gate. That's how we find eternal life with God. And through that, we can learn, we can align our lives. We can, we can learn uh, to, to track with the identity that he gives us, the way he's gifted us and skilled us. We can trust him in the good times and the bad and everything in between. And we can find that in the word of God. This morning in a devotional that I was reading, it said, the decisions we make today will determine the stories we tell tomorrow. The decisions that we make today will determine the stories tomorrow. Some of us, if we call ourselves a Christian, we really need to take this seriously. We need to look okay. at have we allowed anything to marry itself to our faith. Okay. We might think, well, no, 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 that's in line with it. That's we got to be really careful because it's very subtle. It can be a tripping block, right? Okay. Is there something uh, that we've allowed to, to define our faith what? instead of letting our faith define yeah. everything else? You too. We need to be careful with that. This week, let's really take that seriously. Let's okay. dig into God's word. Let's maybe talk to some okay. friends. Let's, let's just do kind of a diagnostic check and just say, hey, I want to be honest, you know? You know me well, talk with me, like, like, let's just dig into each other's lives, right? Let's take that seriously. Some of us here this morning, maybe we haven't. Maybe we, we're kind of like, I haven't given my life to Christ yet. Let's still, let's look at what we're marrying our lives to. Well, let's look at what we're allowing to influence our lives. Are there any objectionable marriages in our life? Is there anything that we need to take? If, if you haven't yet, gone to Jesus and said, Jesus, my life is yours. 
if if you haven't had that white stone with a new name, and again, it's so like there's nothing weird or mystical. And by the way, if you if you say, hey, I prayed the prayer and I gave my life to Jesus, oh sweet, let's go get a stone for you, right? There's no stone with a little magical name on it, right? That's between you and God. We're not going there, right? I know there's interesting dynamics with that, but that's not what this is talking about, right? But I'd invite you to take seriously that invitation to say, God, write a new story for me. I want to make a decision today to where you get to write the story for the rest of my life and all eternity. Amen? Angel. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your love, the fact that you don't give us a list of do's and don'ts and then say, good luck. Instead, God, you, you go to great detail to explain the truth, to invite us into your truth, to set us free from all the things that, that say, hey, eat, eat this, drink this, wear that, buy that, do that, and then you'll be okay. And, and it never satisfies. It might satisfy for the moment, but God, it won't satisfy for eternity. God, I pray that we can surrender our lives to you that we can run to you instead of running away from the storms god we can we can lean into it that we can say god what do you want to reveal to me right now about myself about this world about you god i pray that we can hear your voice of love god if there's things that we've been holding on to maybe this morning if there's something that we've been wrestling with and fighting with and as as i've been speaking maybe there's some some bitterness or some anger or some resentment or resistance i don't i don't know god but just help us to lean into those things why do we want to hold on to those things instead of marrying to you what's keeping us from just letting go and trusting the creator of all things god we can know you through your word we can know you through your spirit through prayer through your creation through the community that you've given us God, I pray that we would lean into those things along that journey. God, more than anything else, God, I thank you for your love. Praise you, Senior. Amen.